Hey guys, it's Mike, Sean, and Scott, and we've got a very special episode of the show for you. We talked to a guy that Sean knows in Russia named uh, Oleg, who is a journalist, and uh, he's living in Russia right now, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I think it was a good episode. He gave us some insight on the war and and uh, the con- you know the basis of the conflict and... Shit! Fuck! 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 <laughs> fuck! Fuck! Yes, make this. I can't do it. I can't do it. It was so funny before we did the interview because this guy's in in Moscow, and you can tell Mike's having like some sort of stressful day, even though like you, I don't know what you did, but I did feel like part of you was gonna complain to him about your day, <laughs> even though he was in Moscow. And then when you didn't, I was like, hell yeah, okay. Yeah, I know sanctions are preventing your father from getting heart surgery, but let me tell you what fucking Deb did today, okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were very frustrated about uh, what laptop or what we were gonna use to, to Zoom off of. Mm-hmm. And Mike was so irritated, and I was like, wow, this guy. But then the guy, you know... He's doing well. You'll you'll listen to the episode. All right, let's redo this. Stuff. I think no, it's. I, I like it. I, I like good. this. Don't touch it. Yeah, it's, yeah this right. is good. This is us. This is, right. yeah, this is us. This is fine. All right. We interviewed uh, a Russian bot that Sean fell in love I'm with like, on know, Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know what to say during the episode because I don't I don't want to get a man killed. You yeah, know, her yeah. name is Svetlana, and we're gonna get married as soon as I send her ten thousand in Bitcoin. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't see his face, so I couldn't even say, you know, blink twice if uh, if, if you're being told to say this. Yeah. But uh, check it out. Listen. You be the judge. And uh, come to the Patreon after. Yeah. And uh, Yeah, I just want to say, you know, uh, uh, he's a, uh, not a diehard Putin supporter, but not an anti-Putin critic. He's a, he's a smart guy, and he gives a Russian perspective on the war in Ukraine, which I, I thought was interesting because you don't hear that in Western media. So it's a bit more of a vegetables episode, but I just thought it'd be it'd be worthwhile the, uh, to get a discussion with a Russian who's generally in favor of Putin's policy here, and just to kind of see what he has to say and how he how he justifies it. But you know, we don't agree with everything he says, but we do believe in equal time. So please sound off in the comments, and you know, maybe we'll get some fucking Ukrainian psychopath, mm-hmm. some Azov battalion in here. Uh, on a future episode to kind of give equal time and provide some perspective. But, uh, dude, my kid had diarrhea three times today, (laughs) three times today. Yeah. Wow. All right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) enjoy the episode, everybody. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Out for Smokes podcast. Uh, today we wanted to do a, something a little different. Um, we've all been watching the news about the, the war between Russia and Ukraine. And uh, if, if you're in America as we are, you're getting a pretty one-sided perspective. You know, Russia Today, the, uh, the Russian channel was forced to shut down. A lot of uh, Russian... Uh, people and perspectives have kind of been shut out of the media. A lot of open micers lost their jobs. <laughs> <laughs> that did happen, yes. Uh, but basically, it, it's it's very hard to find out what's what's actually going on in, in Russia. So uh, through the magic of the internet, I was uh, fortunate enough to, to make the acquaintance of a, of a guy, Oleg, from Moscow. And he's here today. Uh, he lives in Moscow. And uh, we just thought we'd spend some time talking to him about uh, about what life is like in Moscow and uh, what he thinks about the war and the news and all that. So, uh, Oleg from Moscow, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, guys. Hello, America. Happy Election Day, USA. Thanks. Yes. Yeah. Um, did you guys vote today? No, I might go vote after this. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were asking him. <laughs> oh. Yeah. No, yeah. Said, did you guys vote? I'm looking <laughs> no, right at you. No, no, no. Sorry. <laughs> Oleg, um, have, you, have you stuffed many ballot boxes for Trump today? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I t- I tried to, but you, you know, with all the time difference and uh, uh, you know, it's uh, a very complicated thing to do. When I was in, in in America, I actually tried to mess with some elections. Oh no, no, I'm I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> kidding. Yeah, yeah. So uh, 
So yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope uh, I drove I a lot of white somebody, women. Uh, I I hope somebody from outside is in America right now and is actively fucking things up. I don't know to which side. I don't. I, I don't really care. I just hope they do it for kicks, uh, something like that. I wanted to just get your like uh, opinions on the on the war and all that, but uh, before we get there, I just kind of wanted to ask you about what life in in Moscow is like right now because. You know, I read the New York Times and, and such, and they're talking about uh, all the men are, are fleeing Moscow. There's an article in the New York Times by Valerie Hopkins from October 2022 uh, titled, Where Have All the Men in Moscow Gone? And I just uh, wanted, to get your, <laughs> wanted to get your opinion as a man in Moscow. As Moscow's to, Christian Walker. <laughs> yeah. As to, uh, as to the truth of that or, or what the situation in the city is now. Yeah, they really haven't got anywhere except, you know, for the liberal uh, petit bourgeois kind of public. So well, Valerie must have uh, frequented some kind of expensive bars in the, in the center of Moscow, which is uh, where this public uh, nor- normally occupies that time. But yeah, uh, I mean, there's been, there's been an exceptional wave of migration from Moscow because Moscow is... Uh, a liberal c- center of Russia, uh, by far the most liberal voting city here. And uh, of course, uh, there was uh, a massive wave of migration of uh, men aged uh, from 25 to 45 in the past few months, since uh, September, September 21st. And uh, But it really doesn't feel that way, because... I don't know. I don't know how much people really immigrated, but my guess is that it's less than 100,000. And for the city, uh, that's uh, uh, that's probably, you know, like uh, in in the ballpark of 20 million uh, of people who are living here, that's like a very small number. Hmm. I apologize for my uh, broken English, by the way, in advance. I hope it's not like you know, there's uh, a really f- funny interview that I know made by the Russian composer Rodion Shedrin, who came to Chicago in 1991 and, in, and, and insisted on talking in English, in completely broken English on American radio. And that's incredible. I'll send you a link. Yeah, but... Uh, well, that's your, it. Your yeah, vocabulary I mean, is way better than Scott's. Yeah. So. Yeah, I was going to say you don't need yeah. to you don't need to apologize yeah. for broken English. We do a podcast <laughs> with Scott Chaplin. <laughs> <laughs> he's just learning yeah, fourth Scott, grade uh, concepts every episode. Yeah, but Scott is a comedian, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. So that's yeah. not uh, the requirement, like a large vocabulary for the kind of show. We should have you, know, you can be you can you can be funny with uh, with a small number of words. Uh, so. Thanks, I think. <laughs> yeah, you just. <laughs> He's, no, no, no. He doesn't need to know words. Yeah. We're going to have you guys do a spelling bee at the end of the episode. Uh, well, actually, just from that New York Times article, uh, I have a quote here. Uh, Local media report that attendance at one of the largest strip clubs in Moscow went down by 60% and that there are fewer security guards available because they have all either been mobilized or fled. So maybe, uh, can you give us any shoe leather reporting on the state of the <laughs> Moscow strip clubs? Uh, I don't, I don't really know any real stri- strip clubs, you know, because uh, it's like uh, it's like those restaurants you have guys in America that work for like three hours uh, a day every three uh, three days of the, of the week. Basically, most of the strip clubs in Moscow is a front for prostitution. Mm. So, so that's so, not a yeah. great front, huh? <laughs> so yeah, I guess uh, I guess most of the people who could really afford to frequent frequent strip clubs did really move away. But uh, I don't know. You can find relatively cheaper options out here. I think mm. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not into that. So I don't I don't really know about it, but uh, I have a really really huge strip club at like the ten minute walk from my house, and every time uh, I walk or walk by it with my dog, all the ladies uh, up on the third floor are watching 
watching us and and then and they're screaming cool. oh man i do you dog you know <laughs> and 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 they don't don't really seem to be doing anything at, uh no matter uh at which time i go there you know it may be night but it may be morning they're all they're always there and, and they're not really doing anything so uh, I, d- I don't really know i'm uh, sort of skeptical that's uh of that tidbit of information from the new york times a- article because uh, no matter uh, what rages around in your life, be it war, be it peace, everybody wants to, you know, see some boobies. Uh, fuck. I don't know. I don't know how to explain. Do the cops ever go to the Russian strip club and they're like, all right, not, this place is clean. It's just women showing their pussy and asshole. <laughs> <laughs> no one's getting fucking sucked in here. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think, uh, I think those Russian cops may be mm. actually uh, one, uh, some of the people that, who frequent strip clubs most often sure. out here. Are you uh, are you ordering takeout? Are you guys like a, like life is normal in that sense? You could just order takeout whenever you want. Is there like a rule about like you know delivery drivers? Do they go like, hey, tip them more on account of on account of war? You know? <laughs> yeah, they have the well, no. the clap for the Wagner yeah, yeah. group at uh, at six p.m. <laughs> clap for the heroes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean. Uh, it's it's been normal. It's been more normal than it was all year. That uh, that I can say because the relative level of panic uh, of people panicking around uh, has been uh, has been relatively low in like October and November, and it was much higher before. But at at least uh, at least from my own experience, because I don't know, every, everyone got used to. Some kind of new Russia that lives in a state of permanent war, or as we call it here, special military operation, mm. uh, that lives under the san- the sanctions. Uh, that means that uh, you can buy shit on the internet with your visa, or with any card really, or that you can't uh, access half of the websites on the internet. You need to like install VPN and pay uh, with cryptocurrency for it. Or something like that. Everybody got used to those uh, small borders, and it's been going really well ever since, except for the times when there was an active uh, period of mobilization. Hmm. But but yeah, but that but that touched, uh, but that didn't really touch that many people because ov- ov- overall, as you might have heard, we only had like three hundred thousand people mobilized. And uh, for comparison, there are 20 million people living in, in Moscow and 150 million people living in Russia overall. So that did touch uh, a lot of people, but sort of in a second way, in the, in the second hand way, you know. After, after that, it's been calm. It's been, it's been practically as it was before the war, before uh, February of this year. Um, I don't know, maybe for some liberal friends of mine, liberal ex-friends of mine who constituted my inner circle, uh, this shit, this war is like a total a total reset of things. The great reset of things, you know. But for most of the people out here in, in, in Russia, and uh, I think there's an overwhelming support of the foreign policy or domestic policy that Russia leads among the population. It's it's been it's been relatively the same. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, I guess looking at the American media, the coverage of Russia now really reminds me of the coverage of Trump, where it's like, here's why Russia's finished. They're going down next month. You know, it's like because they they originally said the when Russia got cut off from the SWIFT banking system, which you mentioned, why you can't use your visa and, and whatever else. I mean, they were talking about this like it was going to be the apocalypse and Russia was going to collapse. And, you know, I mean, it seems like an inconvenience, but that just hasn't really happened. And that's why I was curious to ask about this this New York Times article, because they they quote like uh, uh, some lady named Tatiana who says all the most reasonable guys are gone. The dating pool has shrunk by at least 50 percent. They quote some marketing director who says, I I try to drive everywhere because they can give out draft summons on the street and next to the metro. Um, so I guess 
What they didn't tell you, though, is that woman has the smelliest pussy in Russia. So she, she was always writing these articles. But now <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how you guys perceive it in America. Maybe that kind of information about the Russia is coming to its end. There is influence on anyone there. But I think it's mostly targeted towards Russian people. And in, in, in Russia, it works like that. Uh, you publish the story in New York Times about the fact that Russia is finished. And then the next day, all the telegram channels in Russia, all the media in Russia just publishes a takedown of it by saying, look what, what, what the top Americans are actually writing about us. Mm. And uh, it works in a funny way because uh, people who don't trust Russian, R- Russian media among the Russian population start to actually believe what the New York Times are saying. Hmm. And that influenced... I know for a fact that, you know, American media and the position of American American media, the way they spin uh, the facts about the situation in Russia influenced some people I knew, I, I know personally to leave Russia. That was like the most, uh, I don't want to say the singular influence, but it was by far uh, the... Uh, the heaviest uh, the, that influenced their, their, their decisions. And you also have, like, you know, the small crowd of Russian ex-opposition figures who all became uh, YouTubers. They all, they all have YouTube channels now that are, uh, that, are, that are pretty openly sponsored by the State Department, and they got the same talking points that New York Times have. Mm. I I, th- uh, I think it's like that with Chinese media too. Like they have some kind of uh, this, this pool of Chinese dissidents who make videos on YouTube that just parrots the same talking points that you see in American media. But uh, these channels, the YouTube channels, are way more in- way more influential out here because obviously nobody, uh, very very few people can read uh, New York Times in original without translation so all they have to uh, perceive is uh, either information from domestic media or this uh, opposition leaders opposition figures at YouTube who bombard the general population with the same talking points about how Russia is coming to the end like that Putin is finished that there are hundreds of thousands loss of Russian lives in Ukraine, etc., 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 etc. It's all just uh, it all just contributes to uh, very visible panic among the certain uh, the, the certain crowds. Like here in Moscow, there are lots of people who have been uh, have been pretty openly panicking about that about that during the summer. And once the mobilization started, they all they all just left. So yeah, dated pool for uh, I don't remember who that woman Tatiana was uh, product manager or something like that. Mm. Yeah, the dating pool definitely shrunk. Uh, I don't think she will find any suitable man with suitable money and suitable position and suitable political views that she's looking for out here. So so she might so she might as well live too. Were they actually handing out like draft notices on the street? I mean, did you see anything like that? No, I didn't see that. Uh, uh, it's been a while since I was stopped by uh, any, any any kind of authority or any kind of law uh, law enforcement group out here in Moscow. Definitely not this year. But yeah, there was uh, an episode, um, you know. Uh, like all the media in Russia amplified one particular episode of uh, a couple of, uh, of men being stopped near the metro by the guys with uh, mobilization notices. But uh, it's a questionable thing uh, if actually that uh, happened because m- much of that stuff is actually cooked by uh, by uh, competing forces in within uh the Russian, the Russian forces, the Russian army forces. Like you have Ministry of Defense, which is which is in charge of uh, mobilization as a whole, you know, and the Russian army overall, obviously. And you have on the other side uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, who is the founder of Wagner Group, 
which is which sort of operates uh, without without the constraints of Russian army. They are, they are mercenaries who fight for themselves and who do things for themselves. And Evgeny Prigozhin uh, had been has been trying to massively influence uh, the media landscape by planting a lot of fake stories uh, that you know that combined together may serve as some kind of prolonged psychological operation about. Uh, in uh, in uh, in in institution panic among uh, general population, and uh, and uh, he tried to sow he tried to sow distrust of Ministry of Defense and uh, the Russian army itself in general population. So uh, I don't know if uh, anybody was stopped on the streets of Moscow to give a notice. Maybe that did happen because uh, mobilization was famously faulty in some points, but uh, I'm really, really skeptical of that. Is there any chance you get drafted, or is it just uh, military reserves, or how does it work? No, no, I, I'm, uh, I am technically a reserve, but uh, I didn't serve in the Army, and uh, the only guys who got called up were the ones who had uh, the army experience before. Hmm. And so, like, uh, another uh, thing that the Western media was talking about of, of how we are about to destroy Russia is how we deprived you guys of McDonald's. Mm -hmm. You can no longer get your yeah. McGriddles. And uh, I guess... Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're like, we actually that, have Russia. We actually, we actually do have a <laughs> McDonald's because McDonald's, uh, you know, didn't move away from here they took the trademark they took the the branding so they're they're not mcdonald's anymore but they sold every single restaurant every single franchise and all the infrastructure to a local businessman which most of the companies that said they were living in russia actually did so we have all the same shit but it's like called in, in, in a different way mcdonald's is called now which means tasty period that's that's it. Not not a tasty period, like you know. That sounds, that sounds delicious. <laughs> delicious, delicious period. You know, you know, something like that. Yeah. So let me ask you, like, what do you think would be kind of the the best, uh, like, like end for all this? I mean, what what do you kind of like hope happens? Uh, <laughs> what do I hope, or what that, what do I think will happen? <laughs> what do you? What would be the? What would be the best? This is where he you? says he wants all of us dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Putin in a, those noses with a mustache. <laughs> he wants Brooklyn nuke. The best. The best, uh, the best I can hope for is that uh, the peace talks will start. Uh, will start soon, and uh, the whole the whole situation will be frozen for many many years. Uh, you know the uh, territorial advancements, the uh, um, the territories that we that we Russia officially, according to international law, occupy unlawfully will stay with us, and uh, there will be a huge, huge freeze of this shit for for many, many years. But I don't think that will happen. I think we're in this some kind of uh, amplified. I don't know, amplified South Korea, North Korea scenario where we will uh, live under, uh, where we and Ukraine will live under uh, uh, under the threat of constant military action for many, 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 many years to come, like well, many decades to come. Mm -hmm. That's what I think will happen. Mm -hmm. Because I don't see, I, I, I don't see uh, how Russia has the resources to attend to end it uh, in in a diplomatic way, or to really end it in a military way, because that would require amazing human sacrifice and amazing mo an amazing monetary sacrifice. And I think that the United States and uh, the NATO combined have enough resources to keep it to keep it going for many, 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 many years forward. Right. Yeah, I got uh, a statistic I found. The Kiel Institute tracked that Ukraine has received at least 84.2 billion U.S. dollars from 40 countries in aid. It's about uh, at least 50, uh, 54 billion of that comes from the United States. So that's 84 billion in aid to Ukraine uh, as of August 2022, uh, which is more than the entire Russian defense budget of 77 billion. So Ukraine's got more aid in this year than Russia spent on its entire military 
So, um, and, and it's something where there's an article in the Washington Post that, uh, you know, I just want to quote from because people will think I'm making this up. Uh, the Biden administration is privately encouraging Ukraine's leaders to signal an openness to negotiate with Russia and drop their public refusal to engage in peace talks unless uh, Putin is removed from power. But then the quote is, uh, the request by American officials is not aimed at pushing Ukraine to the negotiating table, these people said. Rather, they called it a calculated attempt to ensure the government in Kiev maintains the support of other nations facing constituencies wary of fueling a war for many years to come. So they're trying to push Ukraine to negotiate, or at least to say they're willing to negotiate, they don't actually want to negotiate. They want the war to go on years and years. And we've talked about the United States is spending like $300 million a day in, U- in Afghanistan, and then that's gone. So all these military contractors, well, they've just replaced that with Ukraine. They're spending 100 or $300 million a day in, in Ukraine now. And I think from the Western perspective, they just want the status quo to continue forever so they can get their payday. And I don't think there's, there's much uh, long-term thinking beyond that. Yeah, uh, don't don't you think that all the stories about how United States or Joe Biden personally, uh, or I don't know, Anthony Blinken tried to persuade uh, the Ukrainian government to start peace talks or something resembling them, all the stories started to appear, you know, in the past three or four weeks. So maybe maybe they were planted by the democrat i don't know i'm d- i'm dumb about this so i'm asking you guys maybe they were planted by uh the democrats in the media to win uh the swing water who uh, is uh, who's wary of uh providing you know like financial aid to ukraine maybe that was that yeah I think it's possible. I mean, there's been an upsurge in uh, Republicans who want to cut off aid to Ukraine, and and I think they just kind of have to cover their bases. But um, last thing I just wanted to ask before we move on to, like, the war itself is, uh, is there anything else uh, that we might have missed in terms of Western sanctions, both on, like, your life and the the life of people you talk to? Because it seems more like it's just the, uh, let's say, most Westernized, most globalized people have really been uh, driven insane by this. But for for average Russians, things haven't changed that much. You just uh, can't get Gucci bags anymore, or uh, or what are the sanctions like? Yeah, for ordinary Russian, for for West majority of people, nothing really changed that much. Uh, I did have some drawbacks relating to the fact that uh, some of the foreign companies that I've done some work related stuff uh, just flat out refused to pay me. Mm. You know when this started, so I had to back money on 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 Twitter because I did some really really large projects for them and they just refused to pay. And this issue, issue this issue is still not settled. But I'm not uh, an ordinary Russian. <laughs> I live uh, in the center of Moscow and I uh, earn a bit more than the median income in 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 Russia and I specialize in you know sort of PR stuff sort of uh, expensive copywriting stuff so that's it I don't think it uh, uh, I don't think the sanctions influenced my immediate family for instance not one person uh, and they all live in the regions they all live in Tatarstan in Murmansk up north etc 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 and for them the life has stayed pretty much the same. I don't remember them ever complaining about anything. Hmm. Yeah, we were going to pay you an appearance fee for this episode, but we don't want to get indicted by the Department <laughs> of Justice. <laughs> you don't need to. You don't need to. I'm, uh, it's uh, well, The only way you can pay is uh, through cryptocurrency, and uh, I don't want it anyway. I'll, I'll, it's, it's okay. All right. That's good, because my Ethereum is uh, wiped out. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and so I guess just to spend the time we have left talking about the war more generally, though I did want to say, you know, it, the funniest thing to me is I'll read in the American press or uh, Americans on Twitter, particularly liberal people, they'll talk about how we need to punish ordinary Russians, such as yourself, Oleg, for this war. You know, they get so excited about these sanctions and all that. We need to punish them for the war and for not holding Putin accountable. And it's so fucking funny to hear that from Americans, because if this was the standard, I mean, we'd already be in hell for Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, just the... the unfathomable crimes that have been done in our name these last 20 years 
And these people will tell you that we have an even more open and democratic system than Russia does. So what the fuck is our excuse for for not stopping them? So I, I just want to say, you know, if there's anybody, there might even be people mad that we're even talking to you, Oleg, you know, Americans talking to Russians. And it's like, people need to understand that this this level of collective responsibility is insanity. It's not how the world works. That's Osama bin Yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but but that's why you know they paint Russia as a sort of dictatorship that is totally and fully united behind uh, Putin, which is uh, I don't think that's uh, very much true. Even among the patriotic Russians who support the special military operation, there are various branches of people who um, who would like and go and uh, people in America don't really <laughs> don't really understand how much more far right the alternatives are how much more dictatorial uh, the alternatives are and uh, I don't know if they want uh, to punish us if they are in favor of, of punishing us for the reason of collective responsibility that may only go um, that may only go in the way they do not desire it'll go. Because uh, if, if Putin is gone on all, all of a sudden and another government is installed, it's not going to be, uh, mo- most likely it's not going to be liberal or friendly to, to the United States. I don't think that uh, uh, another 1991 is possible anymore in Russia. Hmm. And uh, I guess I know it's a complicated subject, but assume you're talking to an American audience here with, a, let's say, a fourth-grade education level. Assume you're talking to Scott Chaplin. How would you uh, explain this war? Uh, how would you explain just uh, the background and the war uh, if you were to, to try to explain to an American who's only consumed American media? And I'm dumb, too. Yes. Yeah, so we... we uh, uh in the 20th century, we were not strictly Russia, we were Soviet Union, a really, really big country that included 16 different republics. One big uh, Russian federation, which became Russian Federation after the fall of the Soviet Union. And 15 smaller ones, which were based on uh, a strictly uh, ethno-nationalistic basis. And so uh, the uh, new world order that came out after 1991, the the I don't I, I don't know how how to describe it, but let's uh, let's use the globalist world order without without all the bad connotations. Uh, so uh, the American intelligence and American money influenced a lot of this uh, national uh, influenced the rise of uh, nationalism in many of these republics. And a lot of these republics were used by America, by the U.S., and by the net, by the NATO as proxies uh, to uh, to try to influence Russia, to try to influence uh, the things that are happening inside Russia, the domestic policy of it. And so, uh, while while most of these influence went more or less unnoticed it resulted in a huge rise of uh, incredible nationalism in the, in the Ukraine which uh, allowed certain people to uh, get in power and use it to their uh, to their own advantage to enrich themselves by using the nationalist rhetoric and eventually you know the combination of this rhetoric and and the combination of almost unlimited power that they had uh, resulted resulted in us in Russia in Putin personally reacting uh, in a way of military invasion. You know, we've been holding on for like eight year eight years. We've been trying to not making this happen. We had uh, we had. Very important, very big peace talks that um, were guaranteed by the ex-chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel. Yeah, yeah, the Minsk, Minsk agreements. Minsk, yeah. Uh, the Minsk agreements. Yeah, but Ukraine uh, weren't going to to do the Minsk agreements. They weren't going to do the things outlined in them, and so more or less this came. Uh, more or less all. 
all these situations that that was developing in those eight years came to an inevitable military conflict because everybody everybody understood and knew that it was going to happen. Before this year, I thought that it's going to happen in like five years to ten years, but then the things sped up once the uh, new administration, new American administration got in charge. And one of their prior- priorities were actually uh, were actually provoking this invasion, which did happen for for many reasons, you know, for monetary for monetary reasons, for foreign policy reasons. I don't know. There, are, there are, I could really write a book about ways that we've been provoking to do this. For those listeners that do not necessarily you know, stand, uh, st- stand with Russia or agree with Russia, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily argue that uh, we didn't invade Ukraine. Of course we did. We broke the international law, etc., etc., etc. But there was nothing we could, we could do, especially after Ukraine started talking about developing their own nuclear weapons, which, would, uh, which, which uh, if, if developed, would be a total disaster for everyone on Earth, because the, 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 the nuclear weapons doctrine of Russia uh, actually says that uh, Russia has a right to use nuclear weapons uh, in case if, uh, there's, uh, if there's a nuclear attack on its territory, which uh, will, of course, put this shit in, in yet another in yet in yet another dimension. I don't think it's going to happen. But if we, Ukraine had successfully developed the nuclear weapons, the, the ones they were talking about, then uh, it would have been an inevitability as well. So that's it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something where uh, there was the 2014, in my opinion, maiden coup. Although, I mean. Just to be clear, the elected president of Ukraine was overthrown in an unconstitutional manner. I think there were obviously yeah, legitimate yeah. there were legitimate protests that were exploited, and then uh, the president was overthrown, and then an IMF-backed government came in, and they did a bunch of austerity. They cut services, they raised fuel prices, and quite literally billions of, of dollars worth of IMF money was just funneled offshore. Um, because yeah. the government was extremely corrupt, and it's you know you look at Hunter Biden as one example, but uh, elites in the United States from both parties have really used Ukraine as a piggy bank. You know they get their kids jobs at, at whatever company, no show, no work jobs, and mm. and a- another uh, very tragic thing in Ukraine is they actually had a pretty decent healthcare system under the Soviet Union, and that's been replaced by one of the most corrupt nightmares on Earth, um, with just all sorts of expectation that you have to bribe a doctor to see anybody get any treatment, you know, so it's actually pretty familiar to American listeners, so we are defending American-style freedom in in yeah. Ukraine. I sucked a pediatrician's dick this week. It's <laughs> uh, a good strategy. Yeah. But, I mean, like, you know... <laughs> I think there's a there's a legitimate uh, debate and argument about the invasion, as you mentioned. You know the quote unquote special military operation, which which Russia launched uh, February 24, 2022. This comes after 2014, where uh, Russia, in my opinion, they didn't really occupy Crimea. Crimea has been Russian since 1783, but uh, Russian troops did enter Crimea. Uh, and then some uh, Eastern Russian-speaking regions of Ukraine, they broke away. Uh, and then from 2014 up until this, uh, this invasion, uh, Ukraine has been on and off shelling and uh, harassing and uh, fighting with these, these Eastern breakaway regions. Mm. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the fact that there was this like low uh, this warfare going on for, for eight years is really... I think not covered at all in the Western press, mm-hmm. or if it is covered, that you know they completely obfuscated what was actually going on here. But my opinion is, regardless of the invasion, I think we should all just want a settlement. Which, in terms of what it looks like, well, Russia has got to keep Crimea. That's and then the rest of it. I would hope there would be you know 
UN referendums or whatever. But what I just wanted to say was the there was very briefly. Uh, so the invasion starts end of February, and then in April there was one moment where it looked like we might actually get a settlement without all this bloodshed, and that ends when uh, Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, then he makes a surprise visit to the to Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, and he meets with President Zelensky, and just according to Ukrainian Pravda, they have sources close to Liz- uh, Zelensky. Uh, Boris Johnson appeared in the capital, uh, and he brought two simple messages. The first is that Putin is a war criminal. He should be pressured, not negotiated with. And the second is that even if Ukraine is ready to sign some agreements on guarantees with Putin, they are not, they being the West. Johnson's position was that the collective West, which uh, back in February had suggested uh, Zelensky should surrender and flee, now felt that Putin was not really as powerful as they had previously imagined and that there was a chance to, quote, press him. Three days after Johnson left uh, for Britain, Putin went public and said talks with Ukraine had turned into a dead end. So that so was that's like a money making opportunity for them, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like London bankers are so heavily involved in the drug trade, and you know everybody gets a taste of the weapons trade. Which now that Afghanistan's done, you know this is this is their their piggy bank. Mm-hmm. So it is just something where I absolutely believe, and I think uh, this article, this Pravda article, I'll link it if if the listeners are curious. But I think the case here is that there was an opportunity regardless of, of whether or not the invasion was justified, there was an opportunity in April to de-escalate this and get some sort of peace treaty. Apparently, the Russians were willing to have Zelensky and Putin meet at this time, but Boris Johnson and the United Kingdom, they flew in and they sabotaged it, and that's kind of where we are. And now you have this situation where the West is telling Zelensky to say publicly you're willing to negotiate, but that's just to kind of keep everybody here who's bitching about gas prices to kind of keep us on side and and uh and ready for for a years long war mm. um but i guess uh oleg i guess what's uh, what's your take on all that and, and where you see this going yeah i believe the story in the ukrainian pravda because uh i think but uh, i think that's uh, generally you know like uh, the big win for the western powers that are you know, that are using ukraine as a proxy is that Zelensky he has become uh, president because uh, the previous the previous uh, Ukrainian governments uh, all consisted of different you know business elites who had business interests both in Russia and in the eastern regions of Ukraine so uh, either way they didn't really want to escalate this maybe they wanted to continue the continuing shelling of Donetsk and Lugansk and that's it but they didn't really want to escalate because for them uh, the whole situation uh, wasn't entirely po- political. It was also tied to their own business de- business decisions, and also they were like you know trained politicians at the same time. They knew what we, what what they were doing, and they uh, knew how to uh, how to stand on their own. Uh, without actually allowing the Western influence to into the internal matters of Ukraine, and then Zelensky, who who is a comedian who doesn't really have any sort of political training, who is controlled, uh, whose campaign was totally controlled and totally paid for by an oligarch uh, named Igor Kolomoisky, who. By the way, I only learned about this recently. Is one of the biggest landlords in the American Midwest. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, Zelensky is basically uh, a political non-entity when he enters the presidential office in in Ukraine. And now, after the war, he has almost unlimited power. He banned practically every every party in Ukraine. He uh, will. He, you know, exceeded any, any any sort of constitutional powers that he actually had. He uh, nationalized the actual actives and the infrastructure that Kolomoisky himself owns. So he got rid of Kolomoisky, the one guy who made him president. And uh, he's basically the dictator of Ukraine. And the one thing that uh, he does not want to do is to act on his own. So he basically is very influenced by all sorts of, of uh, opinions and all sorts of advice that's coming from all, all different um, parties across the spectrum of 
Western political influence, be it Johnson, be it Biden, be it even Macron or Scholz, I don't know. He listens to everyone and he tries to balance that. And of course, uh, of course, as, as the end results, uh, he's not going to end this in near in, in near future. He doesn't have, you know, any initiatives to uh, resume pe- resume peace talks anymore. Because since uh, those April talks that we had, and since uh, the Boris Johnson interference in all this, he actually gained way more power. He, uh, Zelensky actually gained way more power as a president. So he can do almost any, almost everything. Every political, almost every political party, uh, beats uh, an oppositional party or the one in his own bloc is banned, he can't do anything. He has di- dictatorial powers. So I don't think I don't think he's gonna he's gonna actually actually initiate any peace talks on his own. And I don't think that the West is going to really advise him to hold these peace talks. And if they do, uh, that's when they will meet uh, the first blowback from Zelensky himself. Hmm. You think the, so? The West is just more motivated to keep the war going. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it, uh, uh, the initiative of um, you know the initiative on their side is to keep the war going. I don't know if it's on our side, but uh, maybe it is. Maybe it it, it is it, it it is by now because uh, we are fast approaching twenty twenty four which is like the last year of uh, Vladimir Putin's presidency, and he will need to transfer the presidential office to someone. So um, for these two years, I think, for at least these two years, I think all, all, all possibility of peace talks will be frozen for sure. Yeah, there's a, a Wall Street Journal quote which says uh, U.S. officials have said it is up to Ukraine to define the terms of any acceptable settlement. But again, this is just for public consumption. We're paying, U.S. taxpayers are paying uh, Ukrainian government salaries. Uh, we're, we're paying for basically everything there. And if aid was cut off, the state, as of right now, would likely collapse very quickly. So it, it, it's it's just uh, entirely bullshit that's just sold to the public where when you have all that aid, you have a lot of leverage where you could force Ukraine into a peace settlement if you want it to. But mm. I think the financial motive is very much just let's keep this war going as long as we can. Let's make our money. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but I think Zelensky has become really, really strange in this. If, if the financial aid from the West in any sort of way is pulled off or reduced he will find options to he will find options to keep the foreign money going he has options to do that you know he can he can renegotiate re- uh financial aid from the european union he can find uh, all sorts of uh, private money that can that can be poured in U- U- ukraine and there are lots of people who would be willing to do that, I think. Uh, people like, I don't know, everyone, from George Soros to Elon Musk, you know. Uh, hey, don't talk about our sponsors. Course, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, you know, like the whole, uh, the whole military, the whole American military complex is uh, also, is also it's very much dependent on on the government money and uh, the government contracts it also has all sorts of private sponsors who, who will be willing to uh, to pour money into Ukraine so um, I think I think that if the aid is pulled if like the USA Joe Biden comes out tomorrow and says sorry guys we're pulling, every, we're pulling everything that you have we're pulling all sorts of money we're pulling all sorts of people also all sorts of weapons he will still, uh, Zelensky will still have opportunities to keep this shit going. It's kind of sad. Well, I, I have a question. So, you know, you're talking about Western media and it possibly inf- influencing certain Russians and them leaving, right? So what is Russian media saying? Like, if you go to the store tomorrow, like, what's the newspapers at the deli say? We don't have newspapers anymore. We don't really have 
you know, like the standalone uh, media websites. Everything, everything in the past year had had been replaced by Telegram, which is uh, a messaging app that you can use as a social network. Uh, for the listeners who don't know what Telegram is, so uh, yeah, the whole media la- landscape in, in Russia right now is shaped almost exclusively by federal TV channels. Well, doesn't that, that sound like a uh, bunch of shit? <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's 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 a very very bad situation. You know, like it's very bad for numerous reasons. But uh, if you're Russian and you don't know English and and you don't really know how to navigate this kind of uh, uh, this kind of information, you're left with two options. One is to watch uh, state-controlled TV, which just fills you fills uh, which just uh, feeds you really vanilla propaganda most of the time and that scares the shit out of you when it needs to. Or you can log on Telegram and try to navigate uh, through it, which is uh, which is a hellish task because the amount of disinformation, the amount of Ukrainian influence in Russian Russian language Telegram sphere, the amount of uh, infighting that's been going on within uh, the Russian media is incredible. Like right. I know people who. Almost, almost went crazy. Like literally went crazy. Literally had nervous breakdowns because they were on Telegram for like ten hours, uh, hours a day, reading all sorts of misinformation, all sorts of, of all sorts of news that weren't even closely verified, and their picture of reality got distorted so hard. You know, they were panicking so much. It was just a really, really, really fucked up way to. Consume, uh, consume the media, the information. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's so that's basically it. And uh, what they're saying, all sorts, all sorts of things. I would say that mostly the war is presented in Russia as uh, either as uh, a struggle for the so-called Russian world. You know the rhetoric that. Vladimir Putin used often is that we are returning uh, the places, the territories which belong to us historically, etc., etc., etc. Of course, I don't think he, he really means that. You know, he's a real politic guy, so uh, that's only just rhetoric. Or, uh, or what you get from the media is this kind of ultra patriotic noise that amplifies every single episode that you can turn to that you can spin as an, as unfavorable to Russia. Like, if there's an empty village across the front lines and we're living it and uh, nobody gets killed on on either side among uh, our, our military forces or among Ukrainian mil- military, but if Ukraine still takes control of this village, the ultra patriotic, the ultra patriotic media will amplify the shit, this non, really non, non consequential shit, as the end of the world. Like that's that's the way they're spinning it. So they're pushing for more war. They're pushing for more continuation. Uh, they're they're pushing for continuation and advancement of military action. They they're pushing for more allocation of resources to the war needs. They're pushing for complete mobilization of Russian society, etc., uh, etc. Et so uh, that influences a lot of people, too. You're better off with actually, you know, watching TV, watching state propaganda than logging on Telegram and consuming what's left of uh, Russian media. I do think there, I, I do think a huge part of uh, why we are in this position now, why the media landscape in, in Russia is like that? The huge reason is the Russian state itself, which ignored it in many ways for many years. Like they didn't really uh, counter the influence that oppositional uh, Russian language media, like Medusa or whatever, they did uh, had. They didn't really counter it domestically. Uh, I think you mentioned Russia Today when we were when we were on the beginning, and Russia Today is basically. You know, like media that's working on working on foreign publics, 
You know, it doesn't it, it, it doesn't really influence shit in Russia domestically. It's um, made up entirely for foreigners. It presents this state doctrine of the things we have here in Russia to the Western audience. And that's it. It doesn't really have a say in what uh, domestic Russian media looks like. So that's it. That's basically it. The uh, media landscape out here is relatively fucked up. Relatively would be an understatement. It's majorly fucked up. Well, and I think Americans who don't know should know the context that after the fall of the Soviet Union in the 1990s, Russia was basically a de facto colony of, of Western capital and finance. There were at least three million excess deaths of Russians caused by, quote-unquote, shock therapy and all that privatization. So they should understand why Russians, many of them remember these battle times and they never want to go back to that. And so Putin can maintain popularity uh, by asserting independence and sovereignty for Russia. They don't want to ever go back to being under the thumb of, of the West. And I guess I just wanted to ask you, Oleg, you're, you're a smart guy. You clearly don't buy the propaganda that the, the government feeds. But um, this, this war itself, I guess, do you, do you support it? Do you think it was inevitable? And uh, in terms of like this denazification stuff, is that a real goal? Or is it more just like... Is it more just like the U the U.S. We would be against an enemy setting up a military base in Canada. You know, you just you want some safety and some sovereignty. You know, um, I don't buy the propaganda. I just filter it out, and I try to. And you know, because I worked in media previously, uh, I was a journalist for many years. I know how it works internally. But overall, the fact that I grew up in the nineties and I remember what kind of times those were and i know that it took a really 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 hard, hard uh, toll on my own family and on many many people i know and on my generation in particular which is like completely lost 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 to the future uh, i generally i support putin i support putin's platform for more stability for more sovereignty and of course i don't want any american influence but, uh, you know, as long as Russia exists as a kind of standalone Syrian country that takes on, takes on its own affairs, as long as it's uh, integrated in some way in the world economic system, you know, Russia is like hugest, hugest ex still the biggest exporter of oil, gas, etc., etc. in the world. So uh, as long as... Uh, as long as we don't build another iron curtain around Russia, like, you know, cut, off, cut from the outside world off completely, we are going to be tied to it. And the world is generally influenced by what America does. And of course, they will try to, uh, well, they will try to assert their own influence over Russian affairs, be it, uh, be it in a way of, for military assistance to Ukraine or to probably, you know, some other republics, some some other ex-Soviet republics, be it with intelligence, be it with uh, gaming the financial system to their favor and to uh, our our disadvantage. It doesn't matter. We are going to we are going to be uh, head to head with America for a long, long time if we don't really submit to it so yes i do see uh i do see this special military operation this war as a, as uh an inevitable scenario i was like prepared that it was go it, it, it was going to come to this i wasn't prepared that it was going to come to this this soon but what can you do about it and uh, i don't know of course i don't support the loss of life uh, uh by now but I I don't I I don't support the loss of life among the Russian soldiers and all the time I hear about you know young people in Ukraine uh, no matter how uh, no ma uh, it doesn't really matter that I think that most of the younger Ukrainians uh, based on personal experience are completely zombified like they are completely uh, brainwashed by American propaganda or nation or domestic nationalist propaganda. I don't support any loss of life, life, and of course I want like peace, 
in the territories of the former Soviet Union. But realistically, you're not going to see it. And that's, uh, that's, that's, that's why it's better to be prepared for the state of more or less constant uh, war or constant military escalation. And in the very least, uh, um, I lost all, you know, trust and pacifism. And in the past year, because I don't think it's really, uh, it really fits the world we're living in, and especially the, the world that Russia itself find, uh, finds itself in. So that's that will be my answer, you know. Yeah, well, I think it's depressing because besides the money, as you mentioned, uh, I think a lot of American policymakers think American hegemony is on is at stake here. So if they give Russia yeah. any sort of deal that lets Putin look like he got a win or he, you know, got it came out okay, well then their fear is that there'll be a domino where every other local and regional power, you know, like China will take Taiwan or whatever. They just don't the the entire system of post Cold War hegemony where America is the dominant and the sole the unipower, they think it's on on the line here and i think that's you know part of why people are freaking out reading so much telegram is we are closer to to nuclear war than yeah, we've yeah. we've ever been since the the cuban missile crisis so i do hope there's dialogue and i do hope there's um uh understanding between russians and americans and i guess my last question would be is uh, is there anything else that you think americans should understand about this that we that we haven't touched so far well we're all we're we're pretty much special touched all the basics but uh, right now you touched one thing that I, I would probably want to say something more about is that uh, Russia in its current state isn't really uh, it isn't really possible for Russia in its current state to be a true expressionist power it can barely control the opposition to pro-Russian politics uh, politicians and pro-Russian politics in most of the uh, in most of the former Soviet, uh, Soviet Union republics, like the governments we have, uh, uh, they have in Kazakhstan, in 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 Armenia, uh, in uh, Kyrgyzstan and Central Asian or North, or South Caucasian republics that are hugely important to us strategi strategically or tactically um, aren't really Russia, aren't really aligned with Russia on all matters of policy. And they're more aligned with the West. And uh, uh, I don't think Russia really in its current state, uh, in the state of being in this war, can really, can really influence any any sorts of political affairs in this republics, much less use military power to actually invade them. If uh, if God forbid there's another there's a, another like you know second big military conflict uh, at the Russian border, that's when I think there's uh, uh, the shit in Russia is going to get really 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 worse. But I don't think that Russia. Oh, Vladimir Putin, especially personally, has any sort of real expansionist, uh, expansionist ambitions, dreams. I don't think I don't think that's a real thing, and I don't think that much less uh, our government and our country wants to use nuclear weapons. And I don't think it's uh, the same thing. The same thing is true about China, which. Uh, about which many people in America, many politicians and, uh, you know, uh, big suits in Wall Street try to spin things about. I don't think we and China are expansionists, are expansionist powers right now. Hmm. So we, we, we can only fight for our own, you know, li little sphere of influence. And I don't think there's any sort of really uh, real global multipolarity that we should expect in the coming future it all will still be you know american dominated hmm. so i do, uh, so that's the thing i wanted to say basically yeah. yeah well if i was playing civilization i would offer china taiwan in exchange for invading russia you know that would be 
<laughs> I wish they would bring me in. I have some good ideas. I've played a lot of Paradox games. Yeah. But, um, Oleg, I, I wanted to thank you for being with us. Uh, Scott, Mike, did you guys have any questions we didn't get to? Might be our last chance to talk to a Russian before they <laughs> sanction Oleg off Zoom. Yeah, sorry, I got a little bit tired because it's, uh, like, really late out here. So my English, by the end of this podcast, has become really fucking bad. I, I can sense it. But I hope you, uh, I hope all the listeners will get the gist of what I, what I was saying. All right. Yeah. Um, did you, uh, you want to plug anything? I can uh, put links to your Telegram and Twitter if, uh, if anybody wants to check it out there in the description. Uh, yeah, yeah um, no, not, not in particular. You can link my uh, Telegram channel about music, but I don't think it will be interesting <laughs> even understandable to anyone in America because it's in Russian. <laughs> so that's it. I wanna uh, I wanna say that uh, uh, I don't I don't know. I wanna I wanna recommend some good book. Maybe that's it on the relationship of uh, America and Russia. But I will think of it, and if you can put it and put that and into description, that would be better. All right, I'll do that. All right, Oleg, thanks for being with us. Uh, stay safe, you know, stay out of the strip clubs, avoid the death notices. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. And uh, we'll see you, uh, you, you, the listener, we'll see you on the Patreon, patreon.com slash outforsmokes. Take care. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Good night. Thank you, guys. Thank you.